6: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, SolidarityBreakfast.org.au
4: Solidarity forever!
0: Good morning, Kim. How are you?
6: Good. It's um, beautiful and bright this morning. It's the first time I've turned up and it wasn't dark.
0: That's right. And uh, spring has sprung. It's lovely. It was 21 yesterday.
6: I know. I can't believe it. I went out in um, a beanie.
0: Yeah. A mistake. No, well, uh, that's why I was thinking I just got all excited All all like one of those uh, uh, dogs, you know, that jump around in wild glee Because uh, the sun and the wind has got their ears I felt like that was wonderful Yeah, you should have seen her (laughs) (laughs) A bit of sun, fantastic Uh, But uh, we're we're talking uh, fairly dark politics today, aren't we?
6: Yes actually yeah.
0: Yeah we're going to explore the refugee issue. Uh we're all focused on uh, or the mainstream media is focused on uh this of uh, Syrian refugees who have uh, realized that uh, their home country is now a dog's breakfast and they've mu- but uh, they've unseemly they've been unseemly. They've actually made their way to some of the countries that have actually been actively bombing their own. Yes. And they've actually
6: stood up for themselves, which I think is really been key in the solidarity that they have received from people. Because people seem more human when they stand up and say, I'm not taking this, you know, the people in the Hungarian railway station um, and around Europe.
0: Yeah, so there's there's a battle on between the people and, uh, the powers that be, and it's in, it's, uh, now centred squarely in, to, in, uh, the personification of refugees. And so we're going to have a talk to, uh, uh Dr. Noah Prasil late, later in the program in the last half hour about uh, the meanings of, uh, the, uh, push across the world of the refugees, but also taking it back to what's actually going on in Syria and, uh, the countries, around Syria. What's actually going on and why is it happening? So we're going to have a talk about that. But before we do, in the first half hour, we've actually want to bring us back to our own shores and our own culpability when it comes to refugees. Because I don't know if you realise this, but uh, Mr Dutton, our fabulous uh, Immigration and Border Security Minister, has been, t- been off recently to Switzerland, uh, to Geneva, to... Uh, have a chat about uh, how you can uh, employ draconian methods to uh, stop the tide of refugees. I thought, a doing, I thought they were doing fine as they were. Yeah, Australia's a trendsetter. Oh right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and after his comments about uh, time means nothing when water is lapping at your feet, after he a little quip he had with his uh, his PM after being to uh, the uh, climate change uh, forum in West Papua, where all the island people are saying to them, listen, Australia needs to change its coal policy because, you know, we have water lapping at our feet. And Australia said, no way, no way, man. We're in love with coal. (laughs) Dutton thought it was a a centre for jokes. And you know what his answer to uh, people who... uh, caught it on tape and who were a bit um, surprised at his lack of uh, uh, sensitivity.
6: They're going to make him court jester?
0: Yeah, that's right. No, you know what he said was, um, oh, he was having a private moment with his uh, Prime Minister as if he can uh, lecture people on the ethical and tasteful behaviour. Unbelievable. A private moment.
6: Yeah, it's like in private, it's okay for us to have complete contempt for you. Yeah, <laughs> but in public, we have to try and get ourselves elected.
0: And this is this is a chap that we have uh, running uh, an important part of our government. Unbelievable stuff. So we're going to have a chat with the, the other people who are involved in the refugee issue.
6: Yeah, we're going to be speaking to Victoria Martin, who is a refugee advocate um, in WA in Perth. Um, she's with uh, the Refugee Rights Action Network, and she often... She, well, numerous times per week visits um, refugees in the concentration camps around
0: Perth. There's a few of them. Yeah. Well, she actually is there at the coalface. Another kind of coalface. Yes. (laughs) And then later on, we're going to hear from uh, Christine... um, Christine Carrick, who is the National Vice President of the Australian Association of Social Workers. Now, they are on the coalface as well, and uh, they are also being um, in the invidious position of uh, perhaps being uh, given a two-year sentence if they speak up you you know based on uh, their uh, ethical requirements as social workers they need to speak up about uh, child abuse about other kinds of abuse and detrimental behaviors within uh, their work context but, so
6: this is the same as it applies to doctors and other yeah. professionals as well
0: anyway she's got something to say about that and uh, and she wants the organization and she says the organization will act as a uh, as a cloak to the, any whistleblowers because uh, they don't get any government funding. Which says it all, doesn't it?
5: You say it's only progress, did
1: me. Did you know most of Gippsland and southwest Victoria
0: are covered in licenses for unconventional gas and coal exploration? Gas companies are trying very hard to get their hands on Victoria's precious farmlands. Are we going to let them? No. It's time to declare Victoria gas-field free. The state government has launched another inquiry but won't commit to permanently
1: protecting Victoria. So come and rally with the Lock the Gate movement and stand with the 64 gas-field free communities on the steps of the State Library on Sunday, September
0: 20th at 12 noon. Information? Quitcall.org.au. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. And we're a supporter of FO. <laughs> I'll have to say. Oh. Yeah. Uh, now, who are we going to talk to first up? Uh, we're going to talk
6: to Victoria Martin, who is a refugee activist with the Refugee Rights Action Network in WA. I wanted to ask you uh, what has been happening with the uh, Refugee right, Rights um, Activist Network since the upsurge in solidarity around the refugee issue globally.
3: Uh, Well, busy times, as always. Um, I think certainly there's tremendous challenges in the campaign to incorporate all the new volunteers coming forward that want to get involved. It's an extremely multifaceted campaign. So particularly with the crew at the Refugee Rights Action Network, there would be a range of activities involving Uh, public activism, protests, other kinds of um, events and direct action, but there's also a tremendous amount of advocacy work that goes on that's obviously very uh, emotionally draining and uh, very time-consuming. Most of us, particularly those of us that are also involved in doing a a lot of media work and a lot of public campaigning are also intimately involved with direct advocacy as well. And by direct advocacy, I mean physically going out to the internment camps, um, attempting to assist people to find the kind of support that they need and also maintaining uh, daily contact with multiple people that are interned at the black sites on Manus and Nauru.
6: I did want to ask you about these black sites because they sound horrific. They sound basically like um, torture zones, really.
3: Well, look, that's that's exactly what uh, a rather landmark uh, paper by uh, Savindrini Pereira and um, other investigators have have found, Um, and that is that there is, in fact, a direct correlation between um, the kinds of places that were used for extraordinary rendition and sites like Guantanamo Bay, where the basic concept is that nations that want to do particularly horrible things to people uh, attempt to transfer the responsibility for that harm and suffering to another nation state. Hence, they locate these black sites in other jurisdictions. And that way, no one internationally has responsibility for what goes on there Um, and then when you throw up the walls of secrecy which we do not just around Manus and Nauru but obviously around uh, Christmas Island, Donga Hill, all of the locations on the mainland as well and those barriers on the mainland are getting higher and higher. We found a huge difference in our access and what we're being um, allowed to do inside the detention centres on the mainland since the border force came into effect on July 1st. So this is impacting um, information getting out of uh, uh, mainland detention centres as well.
6: I think that this is incredibly important because while people's eyes have been on what's happening in Syria and Europe, the, I think the general public and the mainstream media have not connected this with the detention centres or the concentration camps, really, that we have in Australia. It's sort of seen almost like a natural disaster. But actually, would you be able to describe some of the impacts of these uh, black sites on individuals?
3: Well you you've you've really got two groups of individuals that um that the system impacts on um and i want to spend the first few minutes concentrating on the perpetrators uh, because i think it's really important to understand the a little bit about the psychology of abuse and that helps one understand the impact on the asylum seekers themselves, who are, are victimized by it. Um, what, what happens when people arrive in Australia seeking asylum is the very first thing that is stripped away is their identity and their freedom. So you immediately create a situation where asylum seekers are others, they are dehumanized, there is very much this us and them and they are constructed as the enemy and what what then happens in the psychology of the staff and those of us who visit regularly and i visit inside detention centers on um, uh, several times every week most weeks because we have several um, in the perth area and what you very quickly see is a real dehumanisation and a normalization of the the environment and the abuse so that even quite decent people at times become immune to the consequences of their own behavior and treatment of asylum seekers. And so that's part of the normalization of abuse cycle that happens. Further, unfortunately, what then begins to happen is you get this culture of abuse that develops. And you create immunity from any kind of oversight or consequences of uh, even quite severe abuse. So very quickly, particularly in, in places like Nauru and Manus, staff come to understand that no matter what they do, The system protects the staff, it doesn't protect the children, it doesn't protect the women, it doesn't protect the young men from the abuse of staff members. Very quickly, within a matter of months, it becomes part of the culture for people who are detained there to be subjected to torture, to violence, to rape, to daily acts of Degradation with no consequences for the perpetrators. So, for example, on Manus, I have a young man that I speak to very regularly, and he agreed um, to speak with a reporter from The Guardian, who, along with a number of others who spoke to reporters, and an article was published. He has subsequently been assaulted by guards on menace and his arm broken, there is unlikely to be any consequences at all, ever, for the guard that broke his arm. On Nauru, we see uh, in the community a number of young women raped. Uh, There was a a really horrific case of a young woman who was um, outside of the detention centre who was um, on the beach with a friend when she was dragged into the bushes, raped and set on fire, Um, no one has ever been charged with that crime. We see really horrific things happening, and the culture that exists within the detention network, and the efforts and energies of the corporations that run these places, Wilson's security and trans field, their immediate instinct and impulse is not to protect the asylum seekers. It's to protect their staff. And so what they immediately do is they move their staff if they're expats off the island, if there's been a particularly horrific incident and if there's been reports made of abuse. And So you then also create a culture where what happens is that people who are victimized very quickly come to understand there's no point reporting abuse. The police are never called to do proper investigations. You don't get moved off the island. The people who get moved and protected are the perpetrators. And it's very similar to the psychology that exists within, for example, the Catholic Church Mm. where pedophile priests, You know, people would come forward and complain. And the system protects itself. And you just, you move the perpetrators. You don't don't punish the perpetrators. You punish the victim. And so that's the psychology of these black sites, where if you're victimized and you attempt to speak out, you can be victimized and punished further. And you, as a victim of that system, very quickly see that the perpetrators of violence against you are the ones who are protected, not you. These private corporations are making this obscene amount of profit off all of it. And in the end, that's what they're protecting. They're protecting their profit.
2: The New International Bookshop, Melbourne's famous left-wing bookshop, we stuck the widest range of left-wing literature and merchandise, as well as heaps of cheap quality second-hand books. Visit NIBS at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton or online at www.newinternationalbookshop.org.au Coming up at Trades Hall, on Thursday, September 10 at 6.45pm, Tim Musio, Senior Lecturer in International Relations and Political Economy at the University of Wollongong will give a talk about his new book, The 1% and the Rest of Us. And on Tuesday, October 22nd from 7pm, left historian Stuart McIntyre will talk about his new book, Australia's Boldest Experiment, War and Reconstruction in the 1940s. The new International Bookshop is a 3CR supporter.
0: And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. I find that a most disturbing interview, Victoria Martins. Talk? Yeah, it's difficult
6: to listen to in in bits to understand the real toll that this has on actual
0: people. Yeah, exactly. And they're doing it in our name. People mm-hmm. have to remember that this is an orchestrated uh, military, pol- turning police into uh, mil- paramilitaries. And, and
6: bureaucrats into, you know, the immigration officials into a paramilitary force, you know, yeah. making them... Those who want to keep their job when they move to the Australian Border Force do push-ups and, you know, all the rest of it. You know, they should be training people to deal with
0: traumatised people coming from wars. Yeah, it's absolutely bizarre stuff and it's uh, the direction that this government is taking people and they are working furiously to ensure that the systems are going to be very difficult to change if and when they get kicked out of office.
6: And it's very sick that actually this is done, as Victoria Martin um, was saying, um, a lot of it for their profits, for the profits of corporations like
0: uh, Transfield. Now, there were actions, weren't there, that uh, happened in relation to this over... Yesterday, it was. There were actions all yeah, around some town. some SNAP
6: actions in uh, three capital cities, including Melbourne, at the offices um, of Transfield. Refugee supporters um, invaded the offices and were in protest um, at the... Human rights abuses, torture, child abuse, and sexual assault of refugees on Manus Island, and one incident of Wilson security guards who were alleged to be involved in the rapes just simply being moved offshore, and uh, they invaded the office and wrote um, "torturers" and the rest of it. In um, what,
0: they what were looks unseemly. like fake blood, they were exactly.
6: And I think there were people wearing the Guantanamo Bay orange um, jumpsuits with the shackles, which is exactly what Australia is doing. It's, it has these black sites, as uh, Victoria was talking about, where uh, the law cannot um, doesn't apply and they can do whatever they like to these people.
0: So we're going to hear from uh, Christine Carrick, who's from the AASW, the Australian Association of Social Workers, and we'll hear more about uh, what this means for people who are actually working for the government
1: I've been a social worker for over 25 years and I've done a lot of work with refugees and asylum seekers. I've worked with um, people from Iraq, Iran, um, people from uh, Kurdish people, um, a lot of young men from Afghanistan, and a lot of families from the Horn of Africa. The AASW is the professional national organisation in Australia for social workers and we represent around about 10,000 members at the present time many of whom are highly um, affected by the Border Force Act and the secrecy provisions within the Border Force Act. Um, Many social workers are involved in the delivery of asylum seeker and refugee services in a range of fields of practice within and outside Australia. Um, Social workers have worked on Christmas Island, Manus Island, Nauru and within detention centres in Australia. They also did a lot of work with the Foundation for Survivors of Torture as do so many other social workers. Social workers work for formal resettlement services as well as a range of health, mental health, um, child protection and community services that meet the needs of refugees and asylum seekers. Of course with the AASW we pride ourselves on our code of ethics and principles of social justice, human rights, collective responsibility and respect for diversity are central to social work in Australia. But these principles are not evident in any of the legislation or policies or procedures to do with the treatment of those seeking asylum in Australia at the present time. Um, As you know, from all of the policies and operational procedures, from the turn back the boats, the Pacific solution, offshore detention, through to the Border Force Act, all contravene Australia's commitments under the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. We know that this legislation and operational procedures that flow from these are all aimed at hiding the truth from Australian citizens in terms of who asylum seekers are, what their stories are, what they had to do to get here and how desperate they have been to get here. All information is now censored, twisted, doctored and very much silenced. The argument around stopping the boats, of course, too, has been hijacked by that simplistic rhetoric that if you argue against stopping the boats, you're accused of wanting to see people drown at sea in the attempt, which is just ludicrous It's not an either-or. The argument that this somehow stops desperate families from getting on boats and trying to get to Australia or get out from wherever they are is insane. All it means is that we don't know who's drowning at sea and where they're drowning at sea, Um, and no effort or energy is going into um, the diplomatic and mature conversations and solutions that our government should be having from where these boats are being launched. It's not happening It's a complex situation that requires mature, transparent understanding and discussion, and it's something we're so far away from at the moment in this country. The government knows none of the legislation is working, which is why the Border Force Act secrecy provisions have been brought in now in July. Not working, not working, not working. Let's just get a little more draconian, draconian, draconian. Um, Yesterday it was reported that Cambodia won't be taking any more other than the four people that it's already taken. (laughs) Um, You can't blame Cambodia. $55 million in aid, fantastic. In an impoverished and poverty-stricken, struggling nation, they'll take the money, thank you very much. But what are they going to do with these people? The government didn't want Professor Gillian Triggs talking out about um, what was going on with the children on Nauru and The Guardian, I don't know if people saw The Guardian this morning, it had a great report on our Senate inquiry into, um, into what was going on. So the report concluded, surprise, surprise, that all children should be removed from the Nauru detention centre, that the Australian government does not know what's going on on the island that Wilson Security and Transfield Services are not held accountable for the atrocities that go on there, and in spite of this, this morning it was announced the Australian Government announced another five-year renewal on their contract to administer that island and that centre. The Australian Government continues to say that it's a matter for the Nauru Government, yet by renewing that five-year contract... It's absolutely bloody obvious it's the Australian Government who's responsible for what goes on there, and to say anything else is just cynical and unjustifiable, really. It's just an attempt to avoid accountability. The DIBP has absolute lack of control of the centre. There's an absence of any reporting (laughs) mechanisms on the staff. There are no compulsory working with children checks, no uh, mandatory reporting of child abuse. We know there's been serious misconduct by some staff and some contractors, and we know that the, um, the bill for the Australian taxpayer is $37 million a month to keep that centre open. So that's $1.333 billion in the three years that it's been going. And that came out this morning. We know that more than 300 children have committed or threatened self-harm in a 15-month period under our name in Australian Immigration Detention. 30 reported sexual assault, 30 went on hunger strikes and more than 200 have been victims of assaults. As social workers and as human beings, of course, we know without a doubt that the normal development of a child or an adolescent is not possible if they're detained in an institution. It just can't happen. There are too many gaps in resources and opportunities and there's the negative emotional climate of hopelessness, anxiety, despair that stifles any, creative, any creativity or any passage of the child through the passage of life that they need to go through through normal child development stages. Lifelong effects on health and well-being. We know all this. Um, Social workers have had to work not only to ameliorate the immediate effects of immigration detention, but work with kids and adolescents who continue to suffer emotional, social and psychological effects once they've been released into the community. And we know through um, information from our members, some of whom have been able to be open about it, some of whom come through the AASW, because we're not beholden for any government funding, so as soon as they give us the information, we can get it out there. Um, The abuse of children, of course, is still rampant on Nauru. One of our members, Victoria, who worked for Save the Children on Nauru, reported the abuse of children to her authorities and she resigned and was pretty much frog marched off the island. Um, she called for asylum seekers on Nauru to be transferred to Australia and that call was made as part of an open letter that many of you may have seen um, and it was discussed on Late Line on on, in April. In this open letter, Victoria and others working in Nauru um, talked about um, how, the, how they informed the Australian Government and the Department of Immigration and Border Protection about the um, abuse that have been going on there, the sexual abuse of women and children for some time. Um, this group of workers informed the authorities in writing of several of these assaults. They filled out official incident reports. They participated in meeting with the DIBP authorities where these result- assaults were actually discussed in the meetings, but the assaults were not mentioned at all in the MOS review. And, of course, that laid bare that um, Minister Peter Dutton is just lying when he talks that there's a zero tolerance to sexual abuse in Nauru. Those who wrote the letter wanted to make it clear that the Australian government and DIPB have, DIPP, have tolerated the physical and sexual assault of children and the sexual harassment and assault of vulnerable women for over 17 months now. And they documented a series of 30 separate case studies and Victoria talks about these allegations which included documentary evidence in the form of emails and incident reports to support the things that she'd been trying to say to the department Um, She said when they were concerned children were being groomed for sexual abuse and were allegedly being abused, they reported the issues up the chain of command on Nauru. They wrote incident reports, documented harm in case notes and other client documentation and raised the incidents in meetings. She said these were absolutely ignored by Department of Immigration, save the children was not allowed to remove children who, in their professional judgement, were very unsafe in this situation. Some of the cases she talked about was a four-year-old girl who began exhibiting behaviour consistent with a child who'd been sexually assaulted, which included sexualised dancing and pulling her pants down to invite adults to have a go at her. Despite child protection workers assessing her to be at high risk of ongoing sexual abuse, the submission said the Immigration Department didn't remove that child from detention. Um, We know child asylum seekers have been beaten at the Nauru school with a wooden ruler. Several child asylum seekers have been subject to corporal punishment at that school, and that still continues. We know a four-year-old asylum seeker was struck by a Wilson security guard on the back of her head in a blow that, quote, lifted her off her feet, according to the Save the Children incident report. The investigations that occurred into child protection matters on the island were conducted by Wilson security staff, who are not professionally qualified or trained to interview victims of assaults or sexual abuse, abuse, and they delayed investigations as well. And Victoria told us... that. um, An incident report had been filed about a 10-year-old asylum seeker who was dragged forcibly from a school, but Wilson Security only interviewed him um, a month later, so there was no no debriefing, no talking to this child about what was going on and why he was dragged out. Um, She talks about a girl under the age of 11 who was sexually assaulted and started to self-harm and a seven-year-old boy who was found naked in the middle of an... None of these things were documented in the Moss Review. They were all put forward. All the um, supporting evidence was put forward. Nothing was put in the Moss Review. Um, She said shortly after she resigned, the Immigration Department ordered her off the island, along with nine other Save the Children workers, um, amid allegations that they were facilitating protests and fabricating sexual abuse allegations. She says there was irrefutable evidence that the Immigration Department and the government had been aware of the growing body of allegations since November of 2013 at least, contrary to comments by Peter Dutton. Of course, so in an effort to silence these allegations and build a smokescreen around them, rather than change the conversation nationally and start dealing with what's actually going on there, the government brought in the Border Force Act and the secrecy provisions within that act. So now we have a situation where our government... Despite our own ongoing Royal Commission into child sex, into institutionalised child sexual abuse, and despite having a nation that's shocked at the inaction of professionals for years and years and years into what went on in these institutions, they're asking for the same thing to happen again. The Border Force Act is asking for health professionals to shut up and allow the abuse of children to continue. There's no other way of looking at it. The AASW um, has put out a call that this is not happening. We deplore this attempt to silence professionals who report crimes against children. So we've united with 11 other peak health organisations in a joint statement that asks for urgent amendments to the Act. We've reiterated our call for the closure of offshore detention centres and we know that you can't tinker around the edges of this sort of stuff. Um, Nothing will make this a safe place for women or children. We have to have a complete rethink about what's going on. And we've reminded our members that, again, we're not reliant on any government funding and as such we can say anything they tell us. We can act as a whistleblower for any of our members who feel that they can't speak out for themselves. Um, And of course, we also have reminded our members that social workers are professionally, morally and ethically obligated to advocate for the human rights of people with whom they work. We know the legislation is in direct breach of their duty of care. And we know that professionals faced with this dilemma of choosing between reporting serious harm to a child and breaking a law of the land is a hard choice for someone to make. Um, We've... Um, counseled our our workers to seek advice, particularly from senior people in their caring organisations, not Wilson Security or or the others, Um, and we hope that they will ultimately choose protecting the children, even if we know it's going to come at a great personal cost to them. Any legislation that threatens to jail professionals who disclose information about the conditions and treatment of asylum seekers in immigration centre is appalling and has no place in Western democracy. Our government does not show leadership in this area. Good leaders don't abuse human rights. They stand up against abuses of human rights. And good leaders know that compassion and generosity are most important and they know that this is what they need to instil in their citizens. But what our government does is instil a fear of difference And other, we watch the fallout of this othering everywhere. So we've got groups like the UPF sprouting their racist garbage all over the place because they are afraid of difference and they've been brainwashed into this other of everything. I once read that the measure of a good government and a just society is how we look after our most vulnerable. Of course, I agree wholeheartedly with this, but I think we need to go further. I think the measure of a good government is one that leads its citizens to think and act with compassion and generosity towards our most vulnerable. And our government's failing miserably on this. Spouting the rhetoric of fear and the rhetoric of othering is is a rhetoric of hate. There's no other way to put it. So the AASW advocates that its members speak up, that they use us to speak up, that they agitate and they hold the government accountable.
0: Well, that was uh, Christine uh, Carrick. C R A I K Carrick Carrick
6: yes and you heard her if you um it's not going to come from the government but if you want to stand up there is a refugee rights uh, snap action happening today at twelve thirty at the state library that's twelve thirty at the state library yeah um so get along opposite Melbourne Central
0: that's right it's about refugees and it's about us it's about us making sure that Australia doesn't ta- inexorably slide into a fascist state it would appear to me. Now we're running a little bit late, so we're going to move straight on to uh, Rank and File.
7: And welcome back to another edition of Rank and File Radio in the Solidarity Breakfast time slot on Community Radio uh, 3CR. And once again, Davey Thomason uh, joins me on the line for today's program. Uh, Welcome back to Rank and File Radio, Davey. Uh,
8: Yeah, uh, thanks very much there, uh, comrade. Uh, I I want to acknowledge that I'm... uh... I'm on the, the Kulin Nation's land, on Don Wathorong, part of the Kulin Nation. I want to acknowledge the, all the others, past and present, I, and uh, on the stolen land of the, of the Kulin Nation, OK? Yep.
7: Before we get into the interview, I'll just uh, mention, obviously, uh, this week the Australian national women's team, the Matildas, are taking industrial action, taking strike action this week. Over their wages and conditions, and uh, trying to get some sort of wage parity with the male Socceroos counterparts, who co- and the women are fighting uh, for equal pay with with the men.
8: Yeah, I I have been following that. and, and as a, I, I, I still uh, play the game, the the world game, you know what they call soccer. I I call it Bar. Yep. And uh, I still play indoor. Uh, I'm the oldest player in the league here, and uh, the down in uh, down in Geelong. And, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's uh, typical, you know, typical, the divide and rule uh, that happens in this, this country. Uh, and I, I, I think, the uh, the, the delegate, the, the goalkeeper, this first nation and, uh, the, the captain's cabin, you know, a very, very, very typical of a lot of people who think they're better than others here. And, uh, not act in solidarity, you know? it's about time maybe the the male team come out in support of their sisters, you know what I mean? Maybe St- Tim Cale should come out in support of the sisters who are on, on strike for for some sort of uh, 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 lift out of the basic wage. They only get the basic wage. $20,000, I think, the, the team gets, you know what I mean? It's disgusting.
7: Oh, in last week's programme, you did speak about the motion you had passed in the CFMEU uh, Opposing opposing war and the use of uh, uranium you did spend time as a union organizer in south Australia and after that you um went back on the job uh
8: yeah it's a, it was a you know, here's, here's a, here's a a place where I got jailed I'd done three days jail for trying to stop the 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 driving of the shaft and the you know we we were involved against scabs there which were all, they were all in the you know the shortens new union at the time the AWU you know and uh uh here's me uh out of work uh i was put in i'll call it a white list because uh the the union uh, uh, stopped me working and everywhere but and i went on as usual you got to start looking and i i I picked up a job in a labor hire company called monadelphers i didn't know where the job was but when i found out it was up in Roxby downs i I started thinking, uh, and uh, I, I phoned around my mates, and they and they told me get in there and see what's happening. So, here's a a person that uh, you know I I I I, I done three days in in uh, in that fucking rotten place called Adelaide Jail, the colonial jail in Adelaide, and again where I'd spent when I jumped ship, you know, for nearly three months, and uh, here's me. Uh, and I ended up in the same cell. It was interesting. I ended up in the same cell. I I, I, I was in, uh, you know, back back in '75. Here's me, and I think it was two. Uh, I think it was '87, 80, and uh, and then I'm, I'm going up on a bus up to 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 Roxby, and it was an amazing experience working in one of the most poisonous places in the world, and. Uh, uh, so I've got a story to tell there, you know. Uh, what happened when I went, I went up by bus up past Port Augusta, yep. you know, by bus, and, and uh, into a camp. And it was a 28-day stint, you know, seven day a week, 28 days. Uh, and as soon as I went up there, everybody said, oh, you're up here organizing, because I knew everybody. Because I'd organized in the state for nearly 10 years. And been a delegate, you know, on different jobs, on all the, all the jobs there, I was delegate. And some of the biggest jobs, you know power stations. Uh, So here's me up in a place I'd tried to stop actually starting, and uh, everybody's saying, are you up here organized? And I said, no, I'm up here for a job, the same as you. I went up there as a rigger, you know. And uh, so they said, I said, they said, is it poisonous? I said, of course it is. It's fucking filthy. And so they demanded the, 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 the riggers and the boilermakers, they all demanded to see the safety officer, the top safety officer. So, and that was one of the most telling experiences in my life about a person who was lying. He uh, come into the shade that night, you know, just before we went on the shift, we were on night shift, and uh, he uh, leant down on one knee. He wouldn't look at us because he was asked straight out. He was asked straight out. He said, "Is this place radioactive? Is it go- is it going to affect our health?" He 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 knelt on one knee in front of the whole the whole uh, shade. There was maybe I don't know 30, 30 uh, riggers, you know, thirty uh, rigger collection of riggers, boiler TAs, scaffolders, and he knelt in front of us. Didn't look us in the face. Looked straight at the deck looked his eyes at the deck, and he said, of course there's no problem here, It's safe as anything. My family is here. That's what he said. The experience we had after that was just amazing because uh, there had been a fire there that had burned out of control for for actually weeks. They flew in every available bit of uh, foam, and it had happened in the, in the final process of extracting... The yellow cake from the from the ore, okay. where, where the gravity gravity they used gravity it it uh, it uh, it was extracted by using listen to this uh, by using kerosene was the last ran downhill on a, on a on a slope on stainless steel on stainless steel uh, what do you call it uh, uh, sheeting that was the final. And it went into a a, a a big tank. But what happened? The kerosene took light. Well, it 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 uh, it's uh, Australian uh, uh, uranium was in Fukushima. Yep. It's in it's it's in uh, India. Uh, t- uh, uh,
7: Do you see any move by the... unions to uh, to ban the mining of it, to ban their members working in the industry?
8: In the case of the. Two unions that I, I I've been involved in. The builders' labourers didn't want to work on it, yep. you know. The the sea of Mew, I think have got a you know a policy not to use it except for medical use, and they don't need the mine anymore. They got enough to use for medicine, you know. Okay. They don't have the mine. Okay. The first twenty eight days I worked in was uh, was uh, uh, in the in the smelter. Stint I done there was was. Uh, uh, was two weeks, and that was in the in the bond in the bond that had been uh, where the final uh, treatment of the of the to to create uh, yellow cake was uh, you know the gravity system that, that caught on fire okay. so in the in the the smelter in the you know the smelter was a big uh, in the crusher plant where they smelted the ore and then they crushed it. They crushed the ore and then smelted it, sorry. Uh, we we were cutting out, uh, the boilermakers were cutting out big uh, uh, conveyor belts, okay. big conveyor belts where the ore was taken from the from the ground, you know, from, from the mining. Yep. And, uh, uh, it, and, and by the way, we're talking about the deepest mine in the world. You know, the deepest uranium mine in the world. It's very deep there, you know what I mean? And it is on, and they are using, this is the real tragedy, they are using water that is millions of years old, cool engines. The the, the most purest spring water that's been there and been cared for by by the uh, Kukata and Aravana People, I think it's the Arabona, uh, Uncle Kevin Bosacott. Yep. I think he's Arubona. You look because we were up there uh, with Uncle Kevin. O- Uncle Kevin welcomed us up there, Bosacott. You know what I mean? Yep. Uncle Kevin, uh, uh, you know all the all the all the the springs. Are, uh, they they don't flow any water there because they have extracted millions and millions of ton tons. Of the oldest water in the world, you know, the most purest water in the world. So they are, they are the great artesian basin where, where, where uh, Western mining now. I think so. We were cutting up all this uh, uh, and, and lowering down into into uh, the bins down below. You know, the, the dogmen were taking them. I, I was I was dogging up top. I remember, and they were dogging down below and. Uh, Anyway, I, I went home. I went home to uh back back to to uh Port Adelaide. And the second time I was going up, I was glad to get out the second time. I, I wouldn't have gone up there again and well, I was this is what I remembered on the bus. I'll never forget on the bus. On the bus and a, a young woman come on and she was she was pregnant. And I and I said, I said, "What how could you have?" And there was lots of, you know, it was a it was a it was a bustling town, Roxby Downs. Uh, Roxby Downs was the richest uh, suburb in South Australia. You know, it, 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 it uh, surpassed all the all the wealthy suburbs from in the eastern eastern part of Adelaide, like Norwood and all that places that uh, where all the multi millionaires who had stolen stolen more than anybody else uh, had lived. You know what I mean? So Roxby became the richest uh, postcode in in South Australia. Yep. and uh Anyway, she was. Uh, I said, "How can you? How can you uh, have a baby in a place that poison as this? You know what I mean? Because you could smell the every. There was not fresh. One. This is another thing I want to emphasize. There was not one bit of fresh air in Roxby. All he could do was smell what was happening there, which was filth. You know, You could smell the poison. And I said, "How can you bring a baby? How can you be? How can you bring a baby up in this place?" And she said, "Well." And this is what she said. She said, and she was going back to Kangaroo Island. You know that beautiful place to live, Kangaroo Island, because I, I know the place because I, I went there on the on a ship for forty years. Two ships I went, the Truebridge and the and the Island Seaway. I went to as a seaman. She said that she lived next door to the to the main safety officer and. He said it was okay. The same fellow who told us lies was very clearly lying to us because he couldn't look us in the eye. So this was that was my final, what do you call it? Uh, memory of uh, of uh, of uh, Roxby was uh, coming out in the last bus. You know, I was getting yep. out of it for the last time okay. to work. Out. I'd never worked there. I'd never worked in, in in the uranium industry industry. And it's not about money. People should not put money before their 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 burdens. Future money does not pay for your health. It 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 might stop you dying, but you're going to die if you got uh, if you've been poisoned up in Roxby. You know your your kids are going to die. The next generation is going to die because it's all you're, you're completely contaminated. You know, if you're based on a lie, you make sure that your lie is covered up. You can see this is one of the most you know the Terry Analis, the great lie. You know, if you start the country off with lies, you got to keep lying, and that's all. Abbott, Shorten, Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd, all they ended up doing was telling lies. Yeah. I I I think that's the best way to to uh, to talk about when you start a nation like this, and they call it a nation. It was many nations before uh, the whites come here, 600 nations. There were many nations here, and they all, all had respect for each other. That's the that's difference. That's the difference. They all had respect for each other. They'd worked it out over seventy, eighty thousand 80,000 years about how to deal with, with things like conflict. Whereas all we know how to deal with conflict is bombs, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, there they go. You know, there should be no such a thing as as, uh, as, uh, atomic bombs, you know. How can you have an atomic bomb and call it a peaceful weapon, you know?
0: (laughs) It's a bit like uh, talking about nuclear power as being a low emissions source of energy. It's an oxymoron. (laughs) Well, they've started again. they started beating the drum for nuclear power again in Australia. Can you believe it? They never forget the money men and women. Uh, don't forget the women. Equal opportunity sleaze bags everywhere here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we have to scoot right along so that uh, we're not uh, over time for the star of the show. This is the week that was...
4: A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when after several days of being pushed and shoved into that scary, haunted abode, the House of Compassion, Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, breathed a sigh of relief and headed for the friendly retreat of Papua New Guinea to savour the warm hospitality. Too warm, because things are getting too warm, it turned out. Get me out of here, Tiny pleaded. The climate is stifling, the humidity is unbearable. These people should do something about the climate. These people, of course, created the heat by suggesting Tiny should do something about it. Well, True Blue Aussies should do something about it, calling for help as they sank into the mire of True Blue Aussies and the world that matters fossil profits. But we can be sure they were assuaged by Tiny's reassurance. We've got a good story to tell, he said. Uh, Well, it mightn't be that good for you, but first, you can only imagine your sinking. Utter crap doesn't cause you to sink. And while True Blue Aussie is sympathetic to your imagined sinking, if we were to react to utter crap, our great industries making unimaginable profits would suffer, would sink. But I can assure you they too are concerned about your plight and are working with my government to balance their profits against your utter crap sinking. A brilliant scheme called Indirect inaction. Indirect In Action. Uh, so they must pay if they pollute. Uh, sort of. Well, not exactly. We, we pay them to pollute. Brilliant, eh? Non-entities who make very little contribution to helping the world economy like Kiribati, Tuvalu, Palau, have the audacity to tell great world corporations what they should do. They even want True Blue Aussie to stop opening new, beautiful, dragging the world's poor out of poverty coal mines. What inhumane disregard for the poor, when just imagine these little insignificant islands could use True Blue Aussie beautiful coal to set up their very own power stations. Well, probably some great transnational corporation would have to run them for them, but do something for their economies, do something for themselves in the small time they've got left. True Blue Aussie does deliver when we make a pledge, Tiny told them, and we pledge to take indirect inaction against utter crap with great compassion. I say, uh, why is all this water lapping at my feet? On Compassion, congratulations to the media Monday for banner headlines and leads that Tiny had displayed his compassion for the Syrian tragedy by taking on more Syrian refugees. What a compassionate man headline absorbers would have chorused. Pity the small fact that he was not increasing our overall intake was lost in the tributes. Then as we mentioned, poor Tidy began being pushed and shoved into that scary haunted abode, the House of Compassion, raising the numbers by the day as he kept his eye on the real numbers, the polls. Suddenly, we were welcoming no proper papers, queue jumping, not illegal, not boat people, but we we would not, could not welcome people also fleeing our invasions who had made it to our razor wire concentration camps as no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people. That would only encourage them. Uh, where is this queue, they asked. Well, Tidy and Team 2 Blue Aussie No, they should go to the Daesh terrorist death cult people, the Daesh terrorist death cult people, and secure proper papers. Say they want to join the queue, but good news the Socialist Party said it too supported leaving all these other people in the concentration camps. There's a moral principle here. The concentration camps, uh, razor wire, and stink the boat spokesperson Richard Malls, the desperate, looked compassionate. Uh, what moral principle? Votes. Just as an aside, in the unpopularity poll, good to see Tiny maintaining his dominance over Socialist Party Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, Little Billy Shorten Ambition. Still way ahead, lots more unpopular than Little Billy. I'm more unpopular than he's unpopular, Tiny boasted. Although I'm a bit surprised they're both not locked at 100% unpopular. Tiny maintained the compassion when he explained how we were really going to help the desperate, bomb the proverbial out of them instead. But, he explained, we will bomb the proverbial out of them with compassion, with compassion. And if our compassion is successful in trained killing potential no-proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, there will be less refugees and therefore less suffering. Therefore, less suffering. Presumably, we'll again concentrate our compassion, along with our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, on wedding parties, because that compassion also cuts off potential terrorists before they even know they'll never exist. On Compassion, top marks to the former Archbishop of the Muslims of Canterbury, Lord Carey for some not others, and our very own Archbishop of the Muslims of Sydney, Anthony Fisher of Men Not Women, for calling on their respective governments to concentrate on the Christian refugees. The Muslims, and let us say we have nothing against Muslims, there are many, many good Muslims, but the Muslims have only themselves to blame. As Christian people, we have a responsibility to Christian people. The Muslims can go to countries where there is Muslim responsibility. Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Sudan, for instance. His Lordship also urged Britain to join the US Arab and True Blue Aussie in bombing the terrorists out of existence. We must bomb them with Christian love, perhaps a bit of Christian torture, burning at the stake, but praying for their immortal, unchristian souls. But theological heresy in Sydney. This upstart nun, criticised fisher of men, not women, said in a most unchristian way we should accept asylum seekers on need, regardless of their religion or non-religion. What a hussy excommunication material. As his lordship said... This disrespectful, disobedient nun must realise that a woman's role is to produce dear little Catholics born in the image of the dear baby Jesus, or as a nun, to pray for dear little Catholics, must understand that in the Holy Mother of the Church, a woman's role is to be seen and not heard. Ah yes, an Archbishop, why do you uh, criticise Islam? Sadly, I regard Islam as sexist. Hmm, good man. By the way, if we've spent eight days, eight 24-hour days, thinking Friday a week ago seemed to go quickly a, a lot shorter than normal, that Saturday came prematurely, well, yes, it did, and it did. See, that Friday was equal payday. Don't know how those who set the date knew it was going to be such a short day. I can recall celebrating women winning equal pay back in 1972, I think it was, Zelda DePrano Prano chaining herself to various institutions and all that. So imagine what the gap would be if women hadn't won. Mentioned last week how the ACTU's Dave Oliver for Capitalism sat down with the Chamber of Profits' Jennifer West to cut wages and the True Blue Aussie Council. The GST must be in the mix of social services to draft the final statement of the big Lord Rupert of Wapping and Falfax Economic Talk Fest. Well, Jennifer said this week neighbours and people in the street had stopped her and congratulated her on her role at the Talk Fest. I think people have an appetite and hunger for ideas, she said. Well, many of the victims of her lot certainly have the appetite and hunger bit down pat, but that's me being cynical toward a great true Lavoisie. Jennifer then gave us a few of her ideas. Lower taxes for her lot and greater productivity by the lazy, avaricious workers. We can do the work. By work, she means think up ideas on how workers can do the work. Can do the work, do the analysis, and then it's really for the community to see the trade offs. Uh, Such as, Jennifer? Well, the community can trade off our necessary lower taxes by paying more tax. They can't selfishly expect us to pay less in the community interest without the community playing its role, accepting its responsibilities and... On productivity, we have judged that one of the barriers to squeezing more out of sorry um, higher productivity win-win flexibility is this tendency by workers to want to go home at nights and, and have weekends off those crippling conditions were, which may have been acceptable in a past era when truly was he wasn't competing on the great level playing field of world's best practice market forces competition policy have no place in the modern workplace. And there are precedents for workers being accommodated by their caring employers. Bangladesh, for instance, where employers so care about their workers, they lock the building and bar the windows to protect the workers, often rent-free. And how is this self-sacrifice by caring employers reciprocated? By major disruptions like the building burning down or falling down at great cost to productivity, showing how inconsiderate and thankless workers can be. Finally, how it must hurt big state supremo who-who and Minister for Public Pays Private Profits Transport to sit an alien to workers to support the poor, caring employers suffering from workers who refuse to accept a few sensible changes to their long-term conditions. People are sick of this union's industrial action, they scream. Irresponsible industrial action, a mere 18 years after the last irresponsible disruption. Bet the union can't wait to sign the next cheque so it can enjoy the benefits of Socialist Party affiliation. Good morning.
0: And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we should have Noah on the line. Hello Noah, Noah, are you there?
5: I am, Annie, how are you?
0: (laughs) Good, if I can control my H's we'll be fine. (laughs) Good morning Noah.
5: Good morning, sorry, who who else is on the line? Kim. Kim, hello Kim, how are you this morning?
0: Good thanks. Thanks. Now, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, as we uh, discussed in our emails, uh, the Syrian refugees have decided instead of sitting there to be bombed to shit, they're going to get up, pick up their belongings and make their way to the people who have actually bombed them.
5: Well, yeah. I'm, I mean, there are, I think there are a couple issues, well, a couple of things that have led to this sort of influx of refugees at this point in time. One is clearly the war is escalating and whilst that's not being reported um, uh, as much as it should be, uh, we do know that the Russians have uh, decided to uh, support Assad more uh, um, robustly. Uh, We know that the bombing campaigns have increased and we know that uh, the Islamic State have uh, intensified their attacks. So, Yes, if you're a civilian in Syria, uh, you'd be pretty keen to get out of there. Mm. And I think what also has happened in the context of this is that those refugees, so and on top of that, you've got the the refugees who have been, uh, who have left Syria and Iraq in the last uh, few years, who have moved into country, neighboring countries like Turkey and Jordan, um, who have come to a point of realization that this is not going to be a short war that this is ongoing that there's no um, resolution in sight and rather than uh, hope for the speedy end to the conflict they've decided to move on um, and in those countries such as Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey the um, the pressure uh, has escalated uh, the refugees are, um, and the and the sort of support for refugees has been really quite um, um, sort of poor. And, uh, and these countries don't have the infrastructure or the capacity. Well, Turkey does, but certainly Lebanon and Jordan, are two countries that don't have the capacity or the infrastructure to deal with high numbers of refugees. And the Turkish government is more interested in overthrowing Assad than providing um, assistance to the refugee population. Well, it's I mean, they're, they're just as complicit in in what's happening in Syria and, um, and Iraq as any other country. So, I mean, we shouldn't ignore the Arab and Turkish responsibility for what's happening in Iraq and Syria as well.
0: I mean, yeah, you're completely correct there. I, I, it's been characterised to me that uh, what ISIS really is and Tell me what you think about this. It's been characterised that ISIS is actually a whole lot of older men uh, who are opportunists, who have whipped up a storm with younger, uh, more impressionable, fundamentalist people. It's Uh, not about religion. It's not about religion at all. It's all about opportunists
5: who... um, Yes and no. I mean, I think there's an element of that, uh, undoubtedly. I think it's more complicated than that, though, because I think there are people who have flocked to ISIS for multiple reasons one is uh the the sort of young impressionism uh, pr- impressionistic uh, recruits from mainly from other arab states and from um the west or non-arab states um who you know have, have feel a sense of loss or a sense of emptiness a spiritual emptiness a, a sort of a, a feeling of um alienation in their own societies and they've the thought that this might be one way of recapturing some of that sort of sense of purpose. Um, I think, secondly, you've got the Sunni uh, sort of um, um, this population in parts of Iraq that feel repressed and see ISIS as an opportunity to uh, take back some of the control they lost after the fall of Assad. And then you've got in Syria um, a situation where the state has just hollowed out, and people are looking for an opportunity to re, sort of refashion some sort of political and social um, organisation that will work for them, and it, at, initially they thought ISIS might represent that. Um, Islam, Islamic political Islam, or is, is Islamism in a lot of the Middle East, over the last 30 or 40 years has been sort of, in, in a number of ways, has come to represent a alternative political program after the 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 failure, what was per- perceived as the failure of pan Arabism, and the failure of liberalism, and the failure of uh, sort of um, state building projects. And so, you know, there's this long, complex history around what Islamism represents uh, for people in the region. I mean, in Egypt, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood is made up of two or three uh, different Sort of factions or groups. One is the sort of the old in leftist intellectuals who
2: felt who who
5: moved away from that after the fall of Nasser and the failure of uh, the Pan Arabist project. Young people who have seen Islamism as the only opportunity to to sort of reclaim some sense of purpose and and, um, and um, a national identity in in the wake of the sort of neoliberal project. And then, thirdly, uh, rich business people who see Islamism as a way of enriching themselves and, and and entrenching themselves as an alternative power base or or elite to the old the old guard. So there's you know there's complex these complex forces around Islam in the Middle East at the moment.
6: I think as well, it's Egypt is an interesting example because partly it was this neoliberal project that was supported by. Um, as you say, leaders who had, I suppose, represented pan-Arabism, but they actually provided, in some ways, the Muslim Brotherhood, um, a kind of welfare state that had been destroyed. So in some ways, they managed to win the allegiance of people by the fact that they were the people who were providing food to children before school. And
5: Absolutely. I mean, this has been the global phenomenon of the last 30 years. As the state has moved itself out of the provision of public uh, services and social welfare, it's allowed for private groups to, to enter into that space. And the private groups best equipped to do that have been the religious organisations, not just in the Middle East, but if you think here about in Australia, the rise of you know private religious schools and private charities and the way that Australia has sort of, uh, you know, there's been this sort of polarisation in Australia between, you know, secular society and, or, or, or sort of a, um, a non-religious society, and one that is extremely religious now, and a lot of that has been fed by the way that uh, charities and religious organisations have stepped into that role that has been traditionally held, well, at least in the in the 20th century in most Western states, by um, by the public service and the and the state and the state as a as a sort of as a system. Um, it's happened in the U.S. where, you know, you see the strongest attachment to evangelical religion in those areas where the state has, is most absent. Because as you say, uh, if you know if you want health care or, or uh, education or some sort of social welfare, uh, the state's absent and there's an organisation there that's willing to provide it. Well, it does more than just become a social provider. It becomes an, a, a sort of a uh, an ideological and a, and a, um, um, a holistic project that reshapes society, and you know the US is a really good example of what's happened in the Middle East as well.
6: A sense of lost community. Mm. That's and,
5: a, yeah, and be- I mean that's beautifully that neoliberal, Neoliberalism does it hollows out our sense of community. I mean Thatcher famously said, "You know there is no such thing as community. There's only the individual." Yeah. So uh, just... and, you know that 's the neoliberal project is to atomize us and force us into this relationship with the market, but as a response, humans have always been social animals they 've looked for alternatives to that because that is an unsustainable way to live it 's an untenuous uh, untenable way for us to exist, and so we seek alternative forms of social sort of social community and or community and in many places, the only place where that is found is in the church, the mosque you know in um, In Hindu societies, or in India now, sorry, Hinduism has had this um, incredible uh, reinvigoration. Um, In Israel, we've seen the emergence of not just Zionism, but a real sort of right-wing religious fundamentalism. Um, You know, in Africa, evangelical Christianity has uh, grown dramatically. In Pacific Islands, I mean, this is a global phenomenon. I don't think it's one that we can just, Focus out, uh, as I say, is focused on the Middle East. But in the Middle East, it's had particularly pernicious consequences because of the way that it's been used not just to restructure society, but as a way of uh, militaristically uh, uh, sort of combating social, progressive social movements.
0: Teetering on the edge of danger. Let's move now to the issue of uh, uh, resources. Uh, there's been some very interesting uh, discussion about uh, scarcity of water where it, when it comes to the Middle East and how that will affect uh, particular states, including Israel, including Iran, uh, and including, including Syria, uh, as well as a very interesting report about... Uh, Israel uh, giving out its uh, first uh, licence for oil and gas exploration on the Golden Heights.
5: Yes, yes. Well, I mean, water ha- is an issue in the Middle East. It's an issue in many parts of the world. I mean, the, um, many of the conflicts in North Africa around the Sahara have some relationship to either access to arable land or access to water or both. Um, you know the Darfur crisis, the uh, the sort of uh, warfare in Chad, uh, in Niger, because these are countries that have tr- traditionally societies where uh, there have been complex ways, or, or, or maybe not even complex, but there have been quite clear um, co- co- cooperative agreements between different groups on how to use these resources um, and share them. That's broken down in recent. Decades. I mean, for me, water is a major issue, but I think those issues, I mean, it's an issue that we all have to face, I guess, as the planet warms and uh, we find new climatic cycles and uh, changes, typo- t- uh, uh, sort of the typo- typography of the ground and all those things that will occur. But if there's a sensible state uh, or political, and sensible is maybe the wrong word, but if there's a functioning Uh, political system, Um, one that understands the needs of its population. And these issues, I think, can be resolved. I mean, my own research on Sudan said to me as I came to the end of it that the Darfur crisis was completely uh, resolvable if there was a political group within the country that could have shown some leadership and have worked through the resource issues that uh, that the the communities in, in Darfur faced. But because the state used it as an opportunity to enrich itself, or the elites in in in, in the ruling group used it as a chance to um, one cement their political legitimacy, and and also to enrich themselves, it became a uh, it became a major conflict and one that's still ongoing in that part of the world. And I think in the Middle East, in other parts of the Middle East, I think the same. For me, it's the same motif. You know, how do we deal with these issues? Well, we need governments that aren't imper- tied to the imperial system, that aren't uh, self uh, self-interested, that are actually thinking about the uh, social, economic, and uh, political needs of their populations. But in the Middle East, uh, there's very little of that, and so you know people will suffer as these states continue to try to legitimate themselves through militarism, through uh, sort of a, a real uh, a sort of um, reactionary Islamism um, and through an attempt to uh, capture the small amount of resources that most of these states have as a, as a way of ensuring their uh, political longevity. So, I mean, for me, these are political issues first and foremost.
0: What did you find out about the uh, Israeli uh, uh, permit for uh, drilling on uh, for oil and gas in uh, the Golan Heights? It's apparently a company that uh, has links with Dick Cheney.
5: Mm. Well, I couldn't find out much. There were a couple of articles about the the business cycle, but it, I mean, uh, you know, in many ways this should be front page news. Um, the Republicans and the the. Uh, business community, the um, the uh, resource corporate sector in the US have been some of the strongest supporters of Israeli expansionism and imperialism in the Middle East. And the fact that they're benefiting economically from these policies should be something that's highlighted, should be on the front page of the New York Times, but instead it's buried in a few uh, bits and pieces that um, that one has to investigate and piece together to get any sense of what's going on. I mean, this is the, this I think is where we have to think about the way that the fourth estate, the so-called media and press, have really evacuated entirely their claim to be a, a, a sort of a safeguard or a, um, a, a way of, um, of um, it, enlightening society about what's happening at the political and economic uh, sort of the commanding heights of the politics and economics in our society and and globally. They are completely complicit and completely unable to offer that. And so we need to find alternative ways of informing ourselves of the way that uh, the political and economic elite are conspiring um, in, you know, multiple ways, whether it be... Uh, the contracts that are uh, given to companies like Sirco and Transfield and, and Manus and Nauru, or whether it's uh, companies that are that Republican leaders have co- um, uh, you know, sort of um, financial interests in that are working in the Middle East, all these things should we need some form of uh, of uh, sort of publicity that that. And and, and shows us what's going on Or tells us what's going on Reveals these these sort of Connections Yeah, absolutely I mean, I think this is the thing about uh, The problem with the media Why haven't we had the real story about the uh, Sort of the Support that companies that are involved in You know, quite nefarious um, um, Things like, you know What's happening on Manus and Nauru Um, and their links to particular people in the political elite. I mean, we need to know this information. It's important for us.
6: I think it's, I mean, it's partly the government's secrecy, but we keep finding out about these things and the mainstream media seems to be far behind, so it can't just be that. Um, I had a question for you, about um, Syria, because I know that Russia has been backing Assad, but I was wondering what the Western powers' attitude is to Assad, because it seemed at first in Syria that they were kind of just waiting for the mutual forces to kind of destroy each other. But I wonder, has their position changed?
5: Um, Look, I I don't think so. I think the... the, uh,
0: well, I, I, just to jump in here, I read an yep. article the other day where Assad was being characterised as the most bloodthirsty dictator of uh, history. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a bit fast-fetched, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's not a
5: good guy. Uh, sorry, let me say this. His regime has been responsible for all the uh, crimes against humanity that, 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 repu- that are repugnant. Torture, um, you know, sort of, um, um, mass incarceration, murder... Uh, repression of of political uh, freedoms. I mean, but that the,
0: sounds like the U.S.
5: It, well, yeah. I mean, the U.S. is a dystopia as much as any. You know, the fact that they've got armored cars roaming through their suburbs now, um, you know, is it, just. Uh, but I, uh, you know, we have to say societies are moving in this direction. I was talking to someone the other day and just saying, to what extent are we now li- the, pro- the 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 sci-fi movies about Armageddon that were made in the 70s and 80s to what extent are they now prophetic uh you know uh, you know when you see something like the border force fiasco you know that people can be roaming our streets um you know asking for identification uh armored people you know people armed walking through our streets not police not anyone who's accountable to
0: yeah
6: nobody accountable and we have thought crime as well pre-crime
5: Yeah, and then when you see... I mean, you know, I I watched last night the impassioned plea by Lisa Wilkinson to do something about violence against women. You know, the the fact this is now endemic, and, you know, we've known for a long time that uh, violence against women is endemic in this country. It's endemic in many societies, not just uh, sort of um, um, Islamic and and Arab ones, but right through. Um, And these are all, you know, part of this... Sort of breakdown, I think, of, uh, of society that's been occurring under the neoliberal project, and you know, people have been writing about it for a couple decades now. Uh, and it's only—I mean, in my view, these problems are only intensifying. And uh, the US is, in many ways, coming to represent uh, the, that dystopia that people were were writing uh, science fiction novels about. I mean, you—you know—you have suburbs where the basically militarised, you have gated communities, Um, you have people living in shanty towns on the edge of some of the most uh, affluent uh, suburbs in the world. I mean, these are all pictures of, you know, sort of a a society that is breaking down. And the thing that really worries me is that the US is still being held up as the template for how we should reorganise our own society.
0: Well, it's fascinating, you know, because in actual fact, a lot of study, a lot of work has been done to actually understand how these things can have uh, be changed and move in a more positive direction. A very uh, positive story was uh, recently about a primary school in Broadmeadows, which has a very uh, disturbing kind of socioeconomic outcomes in a lot of ways. But what these people decided to do was to actually act on the research regarding brain development. And they have changed the lives and future outcomes for the kids that are in that school, like they've the reason for why they were on the TV was because their actual results for their for these NAT plantings had shot up and was compa- uh, comparative with uh you know fee paying private schools. Just because they give them breakfast in the morning, they have a whole range of things that are related to the well-being of these children.
5: I mean, look, I'm not surprised. I mean, the, the solution to socioeconomic uh, or, or to poverty and, um, and the, the sort of social problems that ensue from poverty in the US and to some extent in Australia has been incarceration. I mean, the US incarcerates more people per capita than anywhere else in the world.
0: Yeah, more it's than mad. China.
5: You know, in fact, I think I read somewhere that a quarter of the people in the world that are incarcerated are in the US. Yeah. So their response yeah. to these issues has been to 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 militarise, to, to criminalise, uh, to, uh, to, to sort of penalise uh, people who are poor. Um, and, you know, I think Australia has moved to, in some way in that direction, not as far, thankfully. But, you know, and, and Australians, I think, are sensitive to this, even if they're unaware of it. And I, the, the the political results in Queensland um, earlier this year or late like mm-hmm. last year when Campbell Newman was... Was defeated, turfed. turf was, I think, a sort of a spontaneous, not a politically conscious, but a spontaneous reaction to that sort of um, political project. Yeah.
6: I think as well you see what, what they're really afraid of and what is a threat to neoliberalism, if we could just get a bit more organised, is things like the... Um, Mania around uh, Jeremy Corbyn. You see um, yes. <laughs> people who, well, he, you know, I don't think that he's going to be able to, st- you know, stand up necessarily to the neoliberal project. But the people behind him, that sentiment that you see in Greece, yeah. in Europe, um, even in America yeah. with Bernie Sanders.
5: Yes, indeed, I, I agree, Kim. I think that we're in a point where things that were un, were were sort of unten- like sort of un,
0: unthinkable,
5: uh, irrational. Yeah, unthinkable five years ago and now thinkable. And, I mean, I noticed that this trip with uh, Naomi Klein's trip to Australia for the Dangerous Ideas Festival over the last few months or so, where, in fact, you know, she's come to Australia before and really received almost no public um, um, presence whatsoever. Whereas this time, I mean, you know, and and when she has, it's almost been... um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, not dismissive, it's been dismissive. I don't, don't think she's been dismissed this time.
0: Oh, no. Mm. Yeah,
5: and, I, you know, I know her message this time is a little bit different. It's about climate change, and climate change is an issue that we know the majority of Australians are very, very much in tune to, despite the aims of our government to, to sort of remove it from the public discourse. It is an issue that Australians are very, very worried about. And I think this is the underlying... And this is another um, sign that there's an underlying disquiet about uh, the way that our political and economic elites are uh, sort of framing the big questions in Australia or have tried to frame the big questions in Australia. And, you know, I, I have a feeling I could be completely wrong because there are two ways this could go, and history has shown this. We could move into a more progressive period where there's a compromise sought between capital and the rest of society, and this was the post Depression, World War II um, um, example which broke down in the 1980s in Australia Um, or we could move into a period of, of quite intense reactionism or reactionary politics, which we have entered into but whether the rest of society follows that, as they did during the fascist era, or whether we, um,
6: There's more radical alternatives.
5: We, have, we find mean. more radical alternatives. I mean, you know, no one can predict this, but we sort of, I feel, and other people who are working in sort of the way that social movements and society is m- moving are sort of saying that we might be on a cusp of some sort of um, ma- major change. I guess the question is which direction we go in. And the U.S. will be int- the US election will be a real interesting example of that. We go and on down?
0: that note, I'll have to interrupt you, Noah. Oh, I'm we're... sorry.
5: I was just going to say Donald Trump, but I'm, I'm an <laughs> interview without mentioning Donald Trump. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, the next time we'll, yeah. we'll continue this conversation. Thank you very Exciting much. Exciting and
5: horrifying. Yes, indeed, in, horrifying. And hopefully, by the time we speak next time, he's off the political agenda altogether. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Noah.
0: Uh, and that was Noah, Dr. Noah Brazil. We've got to get out of here because uh, Asia Pacific currents are pushing at the door because it's climate change, you know, and uh, the water is lapping at our feet, and it's on a private moment with our PM. We've uh, spoken to. Uh, uh, Victoria Martin from RAN. We've talked to Christina Crack from AAWSW. We've had Rank and File. We've had This Is The Week That Was. And we've had Dr Noah Pazil You can get us on podcast if you missed us. Uh, and we'll go out with this thing I love, which is Two-Face.
1: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.